It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. The GabFest is sponsored by stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and have your postal carrier pick up your packages sign up for a no-risk trial and get $55 in free postage when you visit stamps.com and use the promo code gabfest and by audible.com a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com gabfest Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for April 17th, 2014, the Ukraine You Saw, You Conquered edition. I'm John Dickerson here in Slate, D.C. I'm joined by Emily Bazelon, who is uh, in New Haven, the woman Senator Feinstein refers to as Emily Battleax. Uh, Emily, hello. <laughs> hello, how are you? I'm fine. And joining us in Washington, sitting in for our dear leader, David Plotz, who's off doing field research for his next closing credits, is Jamel Bowie, lately of Slate Magazine, where... Delighted to have you, Jamal. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, this is his maiden appearance on the show. Will he survive? <laughs> he will, will we, in comparison, I think is the more accurate question. On this week's show, how far will Vladimir Putin go in the Ukraine? Then we'll talk about race in America. And finally, we'll talk about the New York Times investigation into the lack of an investigation into the rape allegations involving Florida State star Jameis Winston. Plus cocktail chatter, of course. But before we get to all of that, we have um, a show coming up in Austin, Texas, which if you haven't gotten your tickets already, please do. It's on Wednesday, April 23rd at the Schultz Beer Garden in Austin. It's a regular show. And then we're going to team up in the second half of the night with our friends at Texas Tribune and their excellent TribCast podcast. If you'd like to get tickets, you can get them at www.slate.com slash Austin. And Emily, you have another little announcement for us. I do. More excitement. So the Slate GabFests have been nominated for a 2014 Webby Award in the podcasting category, and you guys can vote for us. We're actually doing pretty well in this People's Voice contest, and it would be super awesome if we could win. So we would really appreciate it if you would take a minute for to vote for us. We have tried to make it easy by setting up a link that goes right to the voting page. So you just go to slate.com slash Webby. That's slate.com slash Webby. And if you can take the time to do that, we will be very grateful. Thank you. Grateful indeed. Okay, our first topic. The situation in Ukraine has grown more tense. Vladimir Putin emphasized on Thursday that the upper chamber of the Russian parliament has authorized him to use military force necessary in Ukraine. Soldiers are amassed on the border, both Russian soldiers or soldiers pretending to be from Russia. We're not quite sure or pretending not to be from Russia, I should say. Uh, Ukrainian forces are also on the border They have, the Ukrainians have tried to push back against these Russian forces, but they've sort of collapsed. NATO has increased their military efforts. Joining us to talk about all of this is Will Dobson. He's an American journalist who writes frequently on politics and foreign affairs, except when he's bogged down, pulling apart the clumsy paragraphs of this broadcaster in his position as Slate's political and foreign affairs editor. Will, also the author of The Dictator's Learning Curve, welcome back to explain the Ukraine to us. 
What the hell's going on? Oh, wow. What's going on? <laughs> well, there's a lot going on. Uh, I mean, the, the most recent news is the news of a possible pact to de-escalate the crisis in Ukraine. So Secretary Kerry, joined with his counterparts from the EU, Ukraine, and Russia, have announced a deal that would, at least in theory, begin to be the beginning of, an, of a peaceful end. The problem is... You have to sort of ask yourselves right now, which, what do you believe more? Do you believe the news of this diplomatic pact or do you believe the things that Vladimir Putin himself was saying only hours before it was announced where he was really using much more aggressive uh, rhetoric than we've even heard him use recently where he's owned up finally to the fact that it was the Russian military that was behind the seizure of Crimea after having denied it for weeks and where he reminded everyone that he – has the power to use force in Ukraine, and in several instances referred to southern and eastern Ukraine as New Russia. So that might alarm you <laughs> if you are in southern or eastern Ukraine. So, yeah, what in this pact makes anybody think that basically Putin's not going to crazy his way out of it? I mean, that he's not going to just keep doing what he's doing? Well, I mean, the reason – I don't think there's anything in the pact that gives you great confidence. The thing that really matters here that you have to go back to is what are Putin's motivations? And so the reason why you might have faith in the pact, if you have faith in the pact, is that you would then be holding on to the view that – Essentially, Putin has already won, that everything he really wants or needs, he's already gotten. And the thing that's most meaningful, the concession that has really been made was made by Ukrainian leaders who are now saying that they're willing to give much greater autonomy to that part of Ukraine. And if they do that, then that essentially is giving Putin the opportunity to continue to have influence uh, and maintain what his real objective was, which was to keep Ukraine a vassal state of Russia. So this is the idea of a federation. Sorry yes. to interrupt, Emily. Yeah. No, I was just going to say that it seems to me that the genius of Putin is that he threatens something that's truly alarming, you know, taking over the Ukraine, annexing this corridor between Crimea and Russia, even though there's no clear corridor that doesn't bleed into the rest of the Ukraine. War. I mean, these things kind of are on the table. And then it's like everyone breathes a sigh of relief and backs down to some point, which is actually in itself a huge victory for him and pretty outrageous. Yeah. I mean, I think the best way to sort of view Vladimir Putin is he's kind of like a mafia boss. And essentially what he does is he goes in, he creates disorder, he creates chaos and then says, you know what you need? You need protection. And then he offers you protection. And that, that's essentially what his strategy has been in Ukraine, where he's had these forces, which he now openly admits in the case of Crimea, where, where it's his own military. And, and that's absolutely what's going on in, in, in mainland Ukraine now, where he sows a little bit of chaos. He brandishes a big weapon by having 50,000 troops on the border and then says, now, what do you think I'm going to do about it? And then everyone basically gives him what he wants. And the only question we're left with is, is having influence over these events in Ukraine and U Ukraine's future, is that enough or does he actually want to have control? I mean, and really there's only effective. one person. Yeah, effective real control, meaning does he really want to create this corridor or, or carve out part of this country the way that he did in Crimea? And there's only one person who knows the answer to that question. That's him. That's him. <laughs> it's actually Bob Smith of Des Moines, Illinois. <laughs> he's, he's we, we tried to get him on the phone. Really we cannot reach him. Stingy. doesn't read his emails. Um, <laughs> what of the U.S. response to this? I mean – Yeah. What do we do as we watch this mafia boss? He's not offering us protection. We're not the Ukrainian leaders. And yet we get just as rattled and affected by his – 
intimidating tactics. Well, it is, it's frightening stuff. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, what did he do in Crimea? He, you know, this was a land grab in Europe. I mean, this hasn't happened since 1945. So the concern, I think the immediate concern, you know, on the part of the United States and NATO countries is that, and this is really, this is cold comfort for Ukraine, is that it begins and ends in Ukraine. I mean, Ukraine is a buffer state, and this is what happens to buffer states. It's being treated as a buffer right now. And so no one's really talking about providing meaningful assistance in Ukraine. It's just an attempt to maintain this buffer to keep it there. You know, what the Obama administration has been trying to do is try to make sure that they don't appear weak on this, that they give the sense that they deter this, that it has to stop here, that there will be consequences, mainly economically. But at the end of the day, it's an existential issue for Vladimir Putin, and it isn't for for anyone on the other side. Jamal, there was a lot of jumping to use this as a sign that the president was yet again weak when it first sort of happened in the, right after the Olympics. But there seems to be now a kind of Ukraine weariness. It was kind of used in the news cycle when it first came out. Where do you think it is now as a domestic political issue? Does it matter at all? I don't think it matters at all. I don't think it's anywhere. I mean, I think most Americans don't pay this much attention to foreign affairs. I think they may be vaguely aware that there's something going on in Ukraine and that Vladimir Putin is a bad dude. But that aside, I'm not sure that any voters or any – I don't think around any kitchen tables anyone saying, well, I wonder what Obama is doing about this Putin guy. I think anyone who would have viewed this as uh, – or viewed Obama's response as a reason to discount his, quote, strength has already done so. Anyone who is not inclined to do that has already just ignored it all. So, I mean, but this is a great advantage of foreign policy for presidents, right? They can sort of do their thing secure in the knowledge that – a small handful of voters will even know, and of that small handful, an even smaller handful will really even care. Right. I think it still poses an interesting – if it rumbles around, it still poses its most interesting challenge to the Republicans as they have candidates vying for the next presidential election who are of different minds about what it means to be strong or not strong right, globally. Right. Well, we can expect a lot of saber rattling from them, right? But, no, but yes and no. I mean there's the saber rattlers, but then there are – you know, then there's where where exactly does Rand Paul stand mm-hmm. in, in, relative to his father? We know what his father would say. His father would say it's none of our business. And because we were too aggressive with NATO, going all the way back to the Clinton administration as the former Soviet Union fell apart, that, of course, the Russians would feel threatened. And so we've got to take a much more limited view about how we want to throw our influence around or we'll get these kinds of reactions. Now, that's where you could imagine the father going. I don't think that's where Rand Paul is going because you couldn't get elected at this point in the party with that view. But just watching it all play out because the Republicans are trying to reassert themselves as the foreign policy party. So it's a strength versus weak conversation. Will, what of this idea that basically Putin was trying to create a pretext for an invasion, that he has the irregular troops in there, gets some fake protesters, says, oh, we got to go in. And that is a more military version of trying to set up this corridor. Is that still on the table, possibly? Yes. I mean, I think that's really uh, a large part of Putin's in- innovation here is <laughs> is creating a situation where he can basically pervert the language of international law and, and to say that we're actually providing a peacekeeping function here. Never mind the fact that he's the one who creates the disturbance. Um, this is a very 
very sophisticated tactic and something that you know he's really putting his own stamp on. But I, I think that that'll be the question. If you're, if you're trying to test whether or not this pact is going to have any meaning or not, the thing to watch is whether or not we continue to see these quasi-protests uh, springing up in eastern Ukrainian towns and cities. They're referring to these as sort of being the anti-Maidan, which was the, the Euromaidan was the original protest in Kiev. You know, what's really stunning about these things when you look at them is like, like 7,000, 4,000, 3,000 people. And these are some of the people that you see showing up at these protests. We've seen them at other protests, uh, yes, right. you know. They're <laughs> yeah. literally being brought in from Moscow. Right. And they're like dead fans. They yeah. just go yeah, from protest exactly. to this protest. Like, and they're they're the protest groupies right. for Putin. Right. And whether we see these things continue to go forward, then we'll say, okay, yeah, he's still pursuing this strategy. If we don't, then perhaps this isn't just a, a foreign ministry uh, rope-a-dope scheme, which is what I, mean, I think many people are going to perceive it as being. Shake out the U.S. national interests here with Russia. So is it in our interest to basically have this resolved quickly in one way or another because we've got bigger fish to fry with Syria and Iran? And, you know, the Germans want to settle things down because they get 40 percent of their gas or whatever from Russia. I mean, give us the like if you were Henry putting this all together, (laughs) what would you do to just say – Get us to the place that's the best for the United States as fast as possible. Yeah, it's tough because, you know, Putin isn't really interested. I mean, he's definitely interested in prolonging this because it's working to his advantage. But you hit on the nail on the head. You're looking for fast resolution. The real sticking point is at what point does the pressure you put on Moscow really risk the negotiations with Iran and Russia's support of that? That's really where Moscow can be most helpful to the United States right now, much less so Syria, because they're not really being helpful at all. (laughs) So, you know, to some degree, this is a diminished importance because the Russians haven't been as useful as we'd hoped they were going to be. But Iran is still something where they may have a role. So, I think you're looking for fast resolution, but you're not looking for it at the expense of the entire Ukrainian mainland. I mean, you really want to draw this align where things are now. And if you start looking at tanks rolling across the border, this actually becomes not just a carefully manicured invasion like we saw in Crimea, but actually something, you know, with more brute force, then I think looking to keep uh, Moscow's help with Iran and things like that, that all goes out the window. This can ultimately trump those things and, and basically require us to just try to hammer out these deals elsewhere in the world on our own. The last question is – and also I was being stupid and clumsy when I was talking about the troops. There are the fake Russian troops that are actually in Ukraine, but then there are the 50,000 along the border. Mm -hmm. And those are Russian troops wearing the right uniform, Mm -hmm. all of the rest, just not to confuse people further. Are we – if you were to take a historical period, if this isn't the Cold War, if this isn't an ideological battle across the globe between two superpowers, where are we? You've got the rubble of the Arab Spring happening. You've got Russia doing its thing. Is there a – period here where we are or is this a new period i'm looking for you know what's your next a word like page. cold war no yeah. no well, but it's i mean not there's a cold all, you know you, you can look I for know. my next book but you know you could just go to my last book <laughs> oh uh, which you know is it's better than my next book because it's been written that's right um, the dictator's learning exists. curve it's, it's <laughs> it inside it the bought. global battle yeah. for democracy no but i mean in truth what are you really looking at i mean this is a struggle between democracy and authoritarianism and this is what this is at the end of the day the 
rift that really matters in the world is is that one. You know, what has he effectively done? And Putin's project in the last 10 years has been to centralize control of Russia. And what is he doing now is he's decentralizing control along the periphery of Russia because that suits his, to his needs. So at root here, this is about how democracies and in particular Western democracies, the United States and Europe confront what is a modern day strongman. Well, Dobson, thank you very much. Thank you. And now we will have a word about our sponsor. Emily, take it away. That sponsor is Stamps.com. And, you know, when David reads this ad, he often goes on a rant about the post office, which I'm not going to do because I like the post office. But I also think that you can be a fan of Stamps.com and think that the 24-hour access and home benefits it provides could be used alongside the post office. The virtues here are no waiting in line and no hassles when you do your mailing and shipping. You get to use the computer and printer you already have. and print the postage directly onto envelopes and labels and even just regular old paper and give it to your mail carrier. Stamps.com will send you a digital scale that automatically calculates the exact postage you need for any class of mail. And there's a special offer for GabFest listeners. Please use our promo code GABFEST and you'll get a no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes the digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. So go to stamps.com for this special offer. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. Thanks. The question of race in the Obama administration has come up and been a part of the conversation ever since he was a candidate. It's come up again recently. A series of articles have been written. Jamal Bowie has been one of those writing smartly about this. There's so many different parts of this, the conversation both among elites, what you wrote about, which is that the conversation about how elites talk about race has nothing to do with what lived race in America is like. Grab a hold of this somewhere and start the conversation (laughs) So go. The floor Tell is yours. what interests you about right, this topic. Are, I mean, there, there, are, there are almost too many things here. I, you know, I think what I always jump to is um, what I do like to call the, the lived experience of race. What is both interesting and ironic and a little depressing is the extent to which we have this big momentous event in American history, the election of an African-American president, the huge enthusiasm of black voters across the spectrum. And then over the next five years, over the, over the term of uh, Obama's presidency, you have a real backwards movement among African-Americans in terms of their uh, material circumstances. You have an increase in concentrated poverty. You have downward mobility among the children of essentially the civil rights generation and then their children's children. Looking forward over the next 10, 15, 20 years, what you should anticipate based on what we've seen is a real reversal in fortunes for a lot of African-Americans. And weirdly, at the same time, kind of a, a heightened version of the income inequality you're seeing in American society at large, there will be a small minority of African-Americans who will be doing extremely well as working class, uh, lower middle class, and poor African-Americans move steadily behind. That is the story of race in the Obama era, right? That I mean, We can have these conversations about elites, about how, you know, are Republicans racist? Is it unfair to call Republicans racist or Democrats trick or happy with the word racist? But for me, on the ground, there are these trends that are really worrisome and that we seem as a country ill-equipped to handle for a variety of other reasons that also relate to race in the Obama era. Well, I agree with you that this is the more interesting and just more relevant to 
people's lives part of the conversation. And obviously what you're talking about is one way in which race intersects with class and with poverty, right? Because one of the reasons for the downward movement you're talking about is the recession and its aftermath and the widening gap um, of income inequality in which there are these people who are winners with privilege and then lots of other people who have, you know, lost the access to the kinds of those older industrial jobs that used to provide a kind of route to the working class that has fallen away. So I guess then my question becomes, is it useful to think of this as a problem specifically for African-Americans, or should we be framing the conversation more broadly in terms of class in hopes of not alienating conservatives and get them to see these solutions as something that they need for some of their voters as well? Or is that a big cop-out because race is, in fact, integral to understanding this phenomenon and to the barriers to fixing it? I wouldn't call it a cop-out, even though I do think you know race is integral to trying to understand this and trying to fix it. I think that we're witnessing sort of a broad trend that is manifesting itself differently for different communities depending on their particular like historical circumstances. So for African Americans, one of the big drivers of downward mobility, one of the big barriers to upward mobility is residential segregation. Is the fact that, mm-hmm. you know, blacks regardless of income, regardless of wealth, regardless of education, you know, any of these other categories you want to uh, lay down live in poorer neighborhoods, have access to to worse resources and fewer resources. In a growing economy, that's true. In a shrinking economy, that's true. In a stagnant economy, that's true. And in our current situation, it results in a different set of problems for blacks relative to, let's say, formerly middle-class whites in a place like where I'm from, Virginia Beach, which was hit kind of hard by the housing crisis. They face similar problems, but they're different in very important specific ways. I'm not sure what that means for constructing policy because I'm tempted to say, and I think a lot of liberals are tempted to say, we just need universal policy to address these problems. But as we're seeing with the Affordable Care Act, universal policy runs in the problems. Um, The first and foremost in the United States, we have really allergic to the idea of the federal government essentially mandating the terms of any given policy. And so we're very much inclined to give states um, and localities a high amount of control. What that means... Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that I thought your piece about neighborhoods was such an important reminder. And for me, it raises a couple of questions. You know, should we be encouraging more mobility? Because one of the ways, and you have lots of statistics to show this, one of the ways that white people tend to improve their circumstances is by moving out and leaving poor people behind. There is something arguably really beneficial about having more middle class people of any race stay in a poor neighborhood as a kind of stabilizing force. And yet they seem to be paying a real price for it. And then that raises this other question, which is such a tricky one about the culture of poverty, what we mean by that term. Is there even anything useful to say about a kind of African-American culture of poverty? Or do we always end up de-emphasizing structural discrimination and racism when we kind of go down that path, as Paul Ryan kind of tried to do um, a few weeks ago? Yeah, I tend to think that we do always end up 
de-emphasizing the structural. And and I think we end up not just de-emphasizing, but really underestimating the extent to which these problems are structural. I mean, if you if you look at the construction of the American suburbs, this is basically a, a 50-year-long, like, long-term government project. This is billions and billions of dollars, not just being placed into, you know, home loans and mortgage loans, but the construction of highways, the construction of uh, all sorts of transportation infrastructure explicitly designed to get people out of the cities and into the suburbs and limited, I mean, I think we all know this, limited to whites, not given to blacks. And so you have all this, all these resources that are not invested in one kind of community and that are in another. And until I think we address this, until we begin to give the same kind of commitment to the communities that have been abandoned. I don't really see the the utility in talking about culture. Maybe there is a culture of poverty. I happen to think that every social circumstance has its own culture. There's a culture of affluence as much as a culture of poverty and certain skills in these different cultures translate different ways in different places. But in terms of like the macro, it seems like we should be focusing on the fact that inner city communities didn't get these investments, on the fact that there's exclusionary zoning in, in suburbs that prevents the construction of um, more affordable housing. That there's, you know, in D.C., this is a hot topic. There's zoning issues that just prevent the construction of more housing for anyone, which inevitably drives up the prices of housing for everyone. And once we, like, kind of dig into these issues, which are thorny and hard, and try to address the structural concerns, then let's talk about culture, I guess. But until then, it's just it seems it's always seemed very odd to me for culture to be the thing that people zero in on when there's like this this huge world that's like staring at us of all these things that we did and these choices that we made. Getting back to this question of the lived experience versus the what Jonathan Chait outlined in his piece that you were writing about and that's been part of this larger conversation on races, as we talk about policy solutions or even looking to find the root causes, whatever they may be, that you can then figure out the right policy solutions. That felt like that's what Chait was trying to get at, which is you can't even have the conversation because everybody's – what everybody. I mean, so conservatives feel like if they put forward simply a conservative viewpoint, that they'll immediately, as you said, that the left is trigger happy on the race question. And so they can't even get out what they're trying to say without thinking, oh, damn, I'm going to be you know accused of being a racist. So go ahead, Emily. You're – Well, I was just going to say that isn't a lot of that the kind of bluffing and umbrage taking that we express frustration with on a regular basis in that, you know, it would be one thing if conservatives were putting forward really thought through ideas of how to improve the lives of black people and do something about inequality. But, I mean, it seems to me like the problem with Paul Ryan is not just that he was invoking this kind of empty idea of blaming, you know, quote, the culture of poverty um, for inner city problems. It was also that he doesn't have a serious proposal for making people's lives better. Okay, let's say he doesn't have a serious proposal. If his argument is just like, this is where you've got to start looking, then how does he make that claim? Let's say he's just wrong. Is there a place where he can just be wrong and not be accused of being a racist? That's what I think Chait was trying to do is find out how you – everybody's gone to their corners. All the statistics show that basically the correlation between conservative views and race are very strong, that that are stronger than they ever were. And so there's – this is not unfounded that these views have a correlation to people who – 
don't like African-Americans. But on the other hand, there's also this other thing which he says is real, which is any conservative who says something is lives in fear of being called a racist. And therefore, if that's true, and I don't know if we think it is, but if it's true, then how do you start the conversation if everybody's off in these further places than they ever were? Maybe not ever were, but anyway, if they're off in these corners. Entrenched. I'm, I have a hard time figuring out whether I think it's true or not because, you know, definitely if you turn on MSNBC, you'll see, you know, Chris Matthews. I mean, Chait made this point. You'll see Chris Matthews attributing, um, you know, racial bias to something a Republican says or you'll hear someone say, oh, well, that's just being racist. You saw this a lot with the Paul Ryan stuff. And you know, I think I wrote at the time that, like, obviously Paul Ryan was not racist or being racist. He was just playing into what I think is a racist trope. But I have no idea what's in Paul Ryan's heart. I don't really care. On one hand, yes, this happens. But in terms of like regular conversation between liberals and conservatives, not just like ordinary people, but actual elites, yeah. I'm not sure how common this is. Like I'm not – my impression is that people actually are trying to debate this on the merits. Right. Things from the merits. This could be an 8,000 word piece about Twitter, essentially, which right. is that at the <laughs> crust, at the weirdest part of our political conversation where – Everything, everybody's taking umbrage and everybody's flopping all over the place. Yeah. But that's like the people who are behaving like idiots. It has right. nothing to do with race. They're just behaving like right, idiots. Right, right. And right. therefore, underneath it is a serious conversation going on about all of these things in which nobody's worried about getting called out for one thing or another. I like that theory because it feels right. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I just. What about keep... what part, if any, do we think the white fears of reverse racism are playing? I mean, I feel like there's this. I don't have super strong evidence for this, except for maybe watching the Supreme Court and the reaction to decisions where there's this increasing desire on the part of some conservative justices and their followers to say that it's time for, you know, black people to stop getting a special deal, that the people who are getting the special deal are wealthy or, you know, only a tiny fraction black in terms of their heritage, that basically affirmative action has kind of warped into this special goodies system for well-off people who don't deserve it. And I, I find that to be fairly poisoning for the whole discourse because it's only talking about a small fraction of actual black people, but it seems kind of important to me. I, am I overplaying it? I kind of wish I got my goodies. I don't recall my goodies. <laughs> I think you can go pick them up at the, uh, at the front um, desk. That's the thing. It's like they're someone else's by the time you actually go to try and collect Right, right. No, I've been, I've been shafted. If you look at arguments against affirmative action, equal opportunity programs back in the 60s, you see these exact same things pop up. So I'm not so sure it's new. It's just that it's gained more currency in recent years, yes. in part because of the election of Barack Obama, right? That like we, you, there's this high profile African-American figure. So obviously these issues, these problems aren't really as much of a thing anymore. I don't really know how to respond to that because it's not really – it's not something that's responsive to evidence, right? Like you can cite the extent to which at elite colleges among the places where affirmative action is supposed to be working, is supposed to be like funneling black and Latino students too. There's like a, a decline in black enrollment. Like at, at my alma mater and, and John's University of Virginia, black enrollment has declined tremendously over the last five years from something like 8 or 9% to around 5.5% in a state that is almost 20% black. Right. And so, you know, is this because black students aren't 
working hard enough or it's because of something else? And does this show that we don't need affirmative action? Does it show that we still need affirmative action? I tend to think it, it shows that it, there's still a continued need for these sorts of programs. But when you're in dialogue with people who see them as just inherently illegitimate, as any consideration of race whatsoever illegitimate, I don't really know what you do about that. And those are circumstances where I think people get so frustrated that they do begin to imp- imply or, or say, well, there must be, you must just not like black people, right? Like, look at all these things that are happening and you're just, you just don't want to admit them. So the obvious answer is that you don't like black people. And it's out of that frustration that if there are these accusations of racism, I think that's where it's coming from. And now Emily has another word about our other sponsor, Emily. Our second sponsor today is Audible, which, as many GabFest listeners know, is the leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with more than 150,000 titles, which you can listen to on practically any device. And we enjoy giving you every week a suggestion from one of our listeners. And this week's idea is a Texas-related recommendation, thanks to our wonderful um, intern, Rebecca Cohen. And it comes from Ryan Swingle, who is himself a death penalty lawyer in Georgia and recommends Autobiography of an Execution, which is a really powerful book by, as Ryan says, the amazingly dedicated and generous Texas death penalty lawyer David R. Dow. It's a book that is beautifully written and personal, and it's not depressing despite its kind of heavy topic. It has some really light moments in it, and it's just an excellent read and I think would be a terrific title to listen to. So again, go to audiblepodcast.com slash GabFest and sign up for Audible today. And now on to our next topic. Early on the morning of December 12, 2012, a freshman at Florida State University reported that she had been raped by a stranger. It later came out, about a year later, that the woman had uh, alleged that Jameis Winston, one of the marquee names in college football who led Florida State to the national championship and who won the Heisman Trophy, was the uh, alleged perpetrator. The New York Times had an investigation that came out this week that found that there was basically virtually no investigation into this crime by either the police or the university. Emily, what did you make of the Times piece? Well, I thought it was really excellent and important. And I was so grateful that someone had done all the legwork it takes to really be able to draw definitive conclusions about this case. The woman who is accusing Winston, she her friend of hers called the police at about 3.30 a.m. on the night that she'd gone to a bar and met him and then all agree there was a sexual encounter here. The question is whether it was consensual or not. So she went right to the police, essentially, and said that she had been raped and she had some bruising and it was clear much later that the DNA that were um, in her underwear was from Winston. So... That was all kind of there on the table. And what is shocking about this case is that the police just didn't do any of the basic police work things that you do to discover whether a crime had occurred. There was a videotape of the bar that this woman and Winston and his friends had been in. So we would be able to see them there and know, get a sense of their interactions, how much they'd been drinking, what was happening. She said she'd been in a taxi car. So there was some cab driver who could have said something about how everyone was acting. Those things were gone because the police never 
tried to get them, never looked for that evidence. And when the woman identified Winston, which took her a few weeks because she actually didn't know his name, although she did know the name of a friend of his who was there last that night. So the police should have quickly found that friend and figured out who Winston was. Instead, she came forward a few weeks later. And at that point, the cops called Winston on the phone instead of going to interview him in person. When the prosecutor finally got a hold of this case a year later, he said, you know, that's just insane. That is not a t- proper technique you use in a police investigation. And then alongside of this are these questions about FSU and its involvement. It's clear from the record that they inquired very early on about this investigation. It's also clear that the lead police detective was doing security force work on the side for the football booster organization at FSU. And FSU itself, even though it has obligations under the federal law Title IX, seems to have basically done nothing for more than a year. And all that's just really, really disheartening when you think of the rights of this woman versus this very star football player. I'm not saying that Jameis Winston committed rape. We just have no way of knowing that. But the idea that you would have this kind of mishandling of an investigation, it becomes hard to not see some sort of deliberate cover-up going on. So the complexity is whether or not this did or was or wasn't rape. That's where this is maybe complex. But what you're saying and what this article seems to suggest is... It was basically he was too powerful to look into this or not too powerful, too important. Right. I mean, I think what you want to separate here is the difference between bringing charges. Should there have been charges brought? Should the crime – was there credible evidence of – based on this woman's account and these other missing facts – Or was there no credible evidence? That's different than was he guilty beyond a reasonable doubt? Did he commit rape? Should he have been convicted? We never got to that first level because of these errors in the handling of the investigation. And then you ask the right question about the reason for those errors. You know, it's possible the police were just super incompetent and FSU messes up every sexual assault accusation they handle, although they were very defensive and said, no, no, we provide comfort and counseling and emotional support to the women who come to us. That's certainly not the conclusion the school wants us to draw. But, you know, that's sort of the dilemma is it's very hard to know what people's motivations are for the mistakes they make. But It does seem rather telling that Winston played out his entire Heisman Trophy winning football season while all of this investigation was not happening. Jamil, do you think he should have, you know, been benched while this investigation was going on? It would be a heck of a way to like. Yeah, (laughs) I don't. I mean, do you think that, Emily? No. I mean, what are we supposed to do? He wasn't charged with the crime. He hasn't even been charged with violating the school's code of conduct. But whether he should have been charged and then been benched, it's like you have there's a counterfactual problem here. I don't think if someone's not facing charges and no one's proved or presented credible evidence, he did anything wrong. He should have been benched. I just think it's really suspicious that that evidence wasn't gathered. And, you know, it's not good for him either, because what if that tape from the bar shows? that he, you know, the woman wasn't drunk at all and she maybe was lying about the extent that she kind of partly blacked out or was incoherent that night. That would be good for him too for us to know that. So where does this stand now? Like what, it's gone, it's over, it's done, that's it? No, not quite. There won't be criminal charges brought against Winston, but the Federal Department of Education is investigating Florida State University for a Title IX violation. And that puts some pressure on the university. So 
They did bring code of conduct violation charges against these two roommate, teammate friends of Winston's, which I think is itself really enraging is the wrong word. It just seems wrong that these two guys who told the story, which I don't think is believable, but came forward to support their teammate. They're the ones who are basically taking the fall here while he walks. And the other question is, FSU could still bring code of conduct violations against Jameis Winston. He is still a student there. So I think that question is kind of lingering out there. I am sure the university does not want to do that. But is there enough pressure from Title IX and the Department of Education that they might go in that direction? That's kind of the question hanging out there. If I remember correctly, the story noted that this has not been the first time that a woman has said she's been sexually assaulted and the university just didn't do anything. Yes, that's true. There were two other women's stories in the um, New York Times article that were dismaying in terms of raising questions about the sensitivity both of the Tallahassee police and FSU. And more broadly, this has been a terrible year for allegations of sexual assault. I mean, all over the country, there have been these stories erupting on college campuses. And I wish I had an answer here. I, you know, I think that there's something toxic going on in terms of how much drinking, real binge drinking happens in college. People are in situations in which they are not at their best, to say the least. There are these real questions about consent. Um, You know, sometimes men feel like they're taking the blame when women are also at fault. A lot of women feel like they're vulnerable. And the schools and the police are either just having a really hard time knowing how to handle this or actively screwing up, depending on the case. And I wish I had some big idea of how to fix this. But right now, it all just seems really sad and unfortunate to me. And I I sort of want us to be past this as a society. And we're really not. All right. Well, we're not going to get past it anymore on the show. That's it for this topic. (laughs) And now we're going to go on to cocktail chatter. Emily, I know you've been talking this entire topic, but why don't you go? And yet. Why don't you weigh into your chatter while while we're still in the Emily frame of mind? (laughs) I have a happier note of chatter for college graduates, which is this really wonderful little book that has come my way by George Saunders. George Saunders is the amazingly talented and barbed short story writer whose book 10th of December was this kind of huge sleeper hit last year. And he gave a graduation speech, I think last May, that was a big hit. And so now Random House has published it in this small, perfect for a gift sized book. And what I love about this speech and this book is I think it's really hard to write about kindness in a way that isn't preachy and didactic. It's something I've come up against in my own work and in writing about bullying and improving kids' lives. And Saunders really pulls it off. There's a kind of sweetness and a cheekiness to the way he writes about this. And what he basically wants to talk about is his idea that the thing he regrets most in his life are failures of kindness. And he's able to figure out how to describe that and how to encourage other people to not overlook that crucial part of a human existence in a way that I found really moving. And I gave the book to my 13-year-old, to, or actually, God, Eli is 14. I gave the book to my 14-year-old to read, and he also um, liked it and had thoughts about it afterward, which I took as a really good sign. So I guess it's not just for college graduates. It's really for any graduate or anyone who you want to think in this way. Excellent. Jamel, what's your cocktail chatter? 
I am a big believer in watching cartoons as an adult. I still watch a lot of cartoons, and one cartoon that I've been catching up on, and I think everyone should watch because it is very refreshing, is a uh, a Fox show called Bob's Burgers, which, as far as I can tell, might be one of the best depictions of sort of like a sitcom family on television right now. It's very funny. It's very warm. It offers sort of like a, a nice biting sense of humor without it being cruel. And I, I think it just finished, wrapped up its fourth season, and it's, it's just a joy to watch. It's um, not animated very sophisticatedly or, or anything. It's just you know a bunch of great comedic actors embodying a, a loving family and their hijinks. And so I think people should watch it. It might be one of my favorite shows on TV right now, next to The Americans, which, of course, everyone should be watching. All right. And my cocktail chatter is um, that 225 years ago, this week, um, George Washington started to make his pokey way from Mount Vernon, where he was living quietly at age 57, up to New York for his inauguration. He had been elected in February by the Electoral College, um, but Congress hadn't been able to get a quorum until April uh, because of the bad roads and you know the time and distance it took to travel. So finally... In April, there's a knock on his door, and basically he's delivered a very formal declaration that he's been elected president. It goes like this. I'm honored with the commands of the Senate to wait upon your excellency with the information of your being elected to the office of president of the United States. Suffer me, sir, to indulge the hope that so auspicious a mark of public confidence will meet your approbation and be considered as a sure pledge of the affection and support you are to expect from a free and enlightened people. He then gave an equally formal reply, and it just strikes me that this was in a time where for this period and ever more for another 100 years, you were never supposed to actually run to be president. But more important is Washington during this period while he's waiting between the time the electors have voted for him and when he actually gets this weird uh, knock on the door with that refrain I just read, is terrified of taking the job. And writes to one of his friends that he says, uh, my movement when he's finally about to leave, he says, my movements to the chair of government will be accompanied by feelings not unlike those of a culprit who is going to the place of his execution. So unwilling am I in the evening of a life nearly consumed in public cares to quit a peaceful abode for an ocean of difficulties without that competency of political skill, abilities and inclination which are necessary to manage the helm. So not only do we have people who now live their whole life trying to get elected president, but when they are have this kind of sense that, you know, they are the only person on the planet for the job. Here, Washington, who probably at the time was the only person in the United States who could handle that job, was terrified of it. And then finally, this episode has an amusing end, which is for the next two weeks, he makes his way to New York and trying to not look like a king, trying not to look like he's being lifted aloft the shoulders of the people as some kind of special person. The entire country does exactly the opposite of what he wants. So he's approaching Philadelphia and they bring up a white horse and make him ride it through town where a cherubic boy is lifted by like this machine to put a wreath of laurels on his head. Then 13 virgins apparently sing to him, 13 for the original states I suppose, sing to him about how in the war he saved their maiden heads. This goes that on. so Roman. I know. I, I, well, want, exactly. I want to bring this back. <laughs> I, I know. I know. Exactly. Uh, Especially the virgins singing. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. The defenders of the mothers will also defend the daughters was the proclamation. He then, when he finally gets to New Jersey, he is rowed by 13 men all wearing white on a barge into New York. 
And uh, the New York packet describes the singing that accompanied it. The voices of the ladies were superior to the flutes that played with the stroke of the oars in Cleopatra's silken corded barge. So finally, he gets there and writes then beginning the tradition of overly long, uh, both cocktail chatters and overly long inaugural addresses, a 73-page inaugural address, mostly obsessed with the idea that he didn't connive his way into this office for personal gain and profit, because the run-up to this thing has been such a jewel-encrusted affair that he's terrified everybody's going to think that he did this for his own well-being. Anyway, that's what was happening 225 years ago in our little republic this week. So that's my chatter. And now the credits, which I will do in normal order, unlike uh, David's Baroque version. Well, everybody will have to wait for that next week. You can visit our show page at gabfest at slate.com. Our Twitter feed is at slate gabfest. Our email address is gabfest at slate.com. Subscribe to the podcast at the iTunes store. And when you're there, if you like the gabfest, leave a review. It helps other people learn about the show and it adds one tiny little bit to our fragile egos. Search for the Slate Political Gabfest when you're there and uh, that's how you'll find it. Mike Volo is the producer of the show. Rebecca Cohn is our intern. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. For Emily Bazelon and Jamel Bowie, I'm John Dickerson. Thanks for joining us. We'll be with you next week. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs>